Welcome back to Digital Health Unplugged, the podcast in which we take a look at what is making headlines in the world of NHS IT. I'm your host, Andrea Downey, and I'm senior reporter here at Digital Health. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning back in to another episode of Digital Health Unplugged. In case you've forgotten, I am your host, Andrea Downey, and today we're going to be talking about leadership and social care. A recent King's Fund report on shaping the future of digital technology in health and social care found a lack of clear responsibility and leadership for digital technology in the NHS, which is resulting in what they called a social care gap. Now, I'm sure our avid readers will know all about it already, but for those who haven't seen the report, they found there was a clear deficit of evidence on how technology is being used in social care and that there is a divide between the digital maturity of NHS providers and social care providers. It also noted that national leadership was often reshuffled, and that has left many wondering who is actually responsible for some aspects of strategy setting and implementation of technology. There was a lot of information to digest in this report, but it was nice to see social care getting some focus, because personally, I do think that sometimes it does get forgotten about. So joining me to talk about the report and what they thought of it are Hannah Crouch, Digital Health News Editor, John Hoeksma, Digital Health Editor-in-Chief, and Jonathan Kay, Chair of the Faculty of Clinical Informatics and a member of Digital Health CCIO Advisory Panel. Thank you so much for joining us today, everyone. Um, first of all, though, how are you? Are you enjoying life now it's a little bit more normal? Uh, yeah, Jonathan here. Um, I'm enjoying life, but I think that the lockdown has been a lot harsher for other people than it has for me. So tonight that leaves me with online bridge which has flourished enormously uh, during the lockdown. And this summer, we have two live plays. Um, that's As You Like It in Oxford and a new play about Offaly Morell in Garsington Manor Gardens. Tickets still available. <laughs> that sounds great. I'm glad you're using us to plug that as well. <laughs> that was very nice. <laughs> How are you doing, Hannah, on the other side of London? Um, yeah, doing good. It's nice to have, like John was saying, with the sort of outdoor theatres and, and stuff to look forward to again. I got to see uh, yourself and John um, last week. It was nice just to yeah. have human interaction again rather than just via a screen. Um, <laughs> just reminds you that you're not a robot that's on the other side of my screen, that you are actually people. So, yeah, it's nice to have plans again. It's nice to actually write <laughs> things in my diary. It's really nice. It's also nice to pay an extortionate amount for a cocktail. I don't know why I've missed that, but I have. Yeah, Yeah. and to pay for the tube as well, which I haven't done for a while. (laughs) Yeah, I can't say I miss the tube, to be honest. (laughs) How about you, John? I'm good, thanks. Yeah, I mean, the um, the kind of lovely weather of the last few weeks has been great. Lots of time outdoors. Seeing you guys last Friday for the first time since July in person um, was great um recovered from rewired which um was a was a big kind of production for us um last month um and yeah just kind of back into the kind of mix of things um lots going on in the digital health um space um i thought the report we're talking about today is um a good way of taking stock of things but i don't want to get ahead of things too much but very very pleased that that, the lockdown is beginning to ease a bit Oh, yeah, me too. I was starting to crawl the walls with madness. Um, so I'm glad I can go out and see some friends and family as well. I really miss my family. Um, but shall we, shall we talk about it? Because John gave us a nice introduction to it. Um, so as I've kind of explained, the report looked a lot about 
leadership and the use of digital technology across all sectors. Um, but there was a really strong focus on social care. Um, so I guess the first question I want to open up to you all is um, what were the main points that really stood out for you and what did you think overall of the report? I think it's a really nice, well-written, well-referenced report, um, absolutely typical of what we expect from the King's Fund. We all know about the issues in working between healthcare and social care and how we haven't really addressed them. That's slightly different from the issues within social care. But the sheer difference between the two worlds of health and social care from the point of view of informatics deserves a lot of attention. This takes a national view within the Faculty of Clinical Informatics. We've had that even in finding the right people. That's been really important. And leadership and finding those people is a major strand of the report. We were lucky in having Keith Strachan, who's carried this nationally, personally, to an enormous degree. And if this podcast could encourage others, younger people, to step forward, I think they'd be really valuable to the sector in doing that. But it's a bit strange to drive this off technology, where what we normally do is drive it off things like benefits and improvements and cost effectiveness. So I think that's a problem with the report. Technology is only the tools. What you're actually aiming for um, are the benefits. But then they take a really great mature view on the different levels of engagement, the three scenarios that the report uses. And that's a really great protection against these sort of wild, why can't healthcare be like Amazon? Why can't social care be like British Airways, although possibly not this year? Yep. Um, and, and I think that that level of pitching the three scenarios of engagement is really constructive in getting realistic discussion. Yeah. John, I know you've read the whole report. <laughs> um, I have, because um, I'm I'm kind of old and um, you know grey beard. Um, it actually reminded me of the Wanless review of um, 2002, so that's almost 20 years back, um, which took a similar approach of um, of setting out three potential kind of scenarios going forward. Now the Wanless review, for those that um, weren't around or um, don't recall was the review commissioned from Derek Wanless, um, who was a retired banker um, by the um, um, new Labour government under Tony Blair, um, into what the future NHS funding requirements were. It was a precursor for a, a very significant increase in NHS um, funding. Um, and like the Wanless review, it, um, it kind of um, sketches out that this new King's Fund report a it doesn't get investment, serious problems don't get sorted, and we have what's called um, you know, a tech lash, I think is the, uh, is the kind of eye-catching um, term, where basically people are kind of disengaged, um, are um, you know, unconvinced about how their data is being used um, safely, and basically we don't see any of the promise of digital health delivered. Second scenario, which is the kind of mixed bits of it are good, bits of it aren't, but we don't get the systematic um, transformational kind of benefits. And then the, all of the knotty problems are sorted through and we get the full promise of digital health realized at scale. And I thought what the report did very well was at a high level, pull out some of those strands that need to be kind of um, sorted at policy level, funding, um, regulatory, um, around sort of um, data. And, and it for me, it really kind of um, brought home that we've been talking about, you know, digital health having this phenomenal kind of moment during kind of COVID-19, 
but the obstacles it still has to kind of um, navigate and um, and kind of find a way through are formidable. I think for me, um, the national leadership and the lack of kind of clear responsibility really struck out to me because I think that's kind of always been an issue with social care. So when you think about um, sort of primary and acute care, you can talk about the likes of, um, you know, you have your Sonia Patels, you've got your Dr. Simon Eccles, you have Natasha Phillips, who are all these key figures, um, you know, who are uh, sort of promoting digital health kind of in, in the acute and primary sectors and secondary sectors. But when it comes to social care, there doesn't seem to be, like sort of Jonathan was saying, these kind of people that are at the forefront kind of really driving for it. And it's something that I've never really given much thought to about, to be honest. Um, but na- these kind of, this like lack of national leadership and lack of kind of clear figures who who can kind of come, you know, they you know, the likes of Simon Eccles and, and Sonia Patel and, and Natasha Phillips, they come and speak to the likes of us and, and our networks regularly and talk about what they're doing. But I think that was something that really sort of um, jumped out of me um, and I think really needs to be addressed is this kind of lack of responsibility because if no one's kind of pushing for it, you're never going to get that change um, and you're nothing's going to sort of move forward, which is obviously it's needed. So, yeah, that was the, the main thing for me. Yeah, almost like we would need like a CCIO or a CIO or someone that stands out in the front for social care as well. Um, Yeah, I totally understand that. I thought the same as well. Um, And I also thought the same that you were mentioning, John, how it sort of addresses the policy issues and the regulatory issues and the leadership issues. Um, Because sometimes, I mean, we all know, you guys know how much I love a report. (laughs) So sometimes when I'm reading them, I do sometimes think this is only really focusing on one area rather than the whole picture. But this report, I thought, did a really good job of addressing how to fix the problems in all three of those areas. Um, And yeah, as I said, it was nice to see social care um, getting a mention because it's not something that gets much attention, I think, in the digital transformation world. Um, So that kind of brings me to asking about the gap in um, digital maturity between social care and NHS providers. Um, Jonathan, you kind of mentioned earlier that technology is only the tool and it's not really the solution. Um, how do you think we address this, that, you know, this gap in digital maturity without relying solely on technology being the tool we use for that? Yeah. So, um, what you don't have in social care are the things like the big acute trusts buying big, predominantly American EPRs. That sort of marketplace doesn't exist. And that's because the employers, the directors of finance are just in very different sorts of organizations. That's the first reason. The shape of the pattern of expenditure is different. And the second is because you don't have something like NHS England and a minister. And it doesn't attract the political attention the same way. Two completely different differences. However, having said my concerns about technology, one of the four that they pick on is mobile technology. And I wonder if there's an opportunity there which is if you're not spending your time putting in the big organizationally shaped systems, you can actually get on with the things that give enormous benefit to care workers, practitioners, mobile, out in the community, by just making sure they have the right phones and the right information and the right tablets. And as we saw this year, also true for, I'm not sure what we're going to call them, citizens, clients, patients, of just getting out of the way of everybody and allowing them to use the same technology, in this case, small devices, mobile technology, high-speed, abundant uh, wireless networks, to get on with all sorts of day-to-day tasks. 
So if I turn that around the other way, if you look in the discourse discussions, you'll quite often find people saying, why can't I use WhatsApp, tablet, video at work in the way that I can with the rest of my life in entertainment, in retail and travel? And I wonder if there's a, a, a reason for um, optimism there with social care, that they may jump straight to those things, low-hanging fruit, that give very high benefits to the sorts of workers in this environment. I'd also say that as well as the citizen and those workers, there are a lot of informal carers, relatives, keeping the whole thing held together, and they make very widespread use of mobile technology. I'm nothing like so optimistic about the other technologies they identify in this report, but getting the phones, the video, all of those out to all of the people involved in the complexity of care, I think is a great opportunity. And if I'm optimistic, not buying big multiple big systems that are corporate and take five to 10 years to get the benefits, maybe an opportunity for social care to bypass those problems. Mm. So back to basics, really. Yes. Yeah. The on, on the kind of um, on the kind of, you know, personal um, technology and um, and its distribution, I thought one of the things that the report does kind of um, early on is talk about um, digital inequalities and um, do that through the kind of lens of um, the past year of um, pandemic. I think most of this report was written ahead of the pandemic and they've done a bit of an kind of update. I think they kind of say that quite early on. But, you know, it, it, it really has become an issue, I think, that's come to the kind of um, fore and is going to continue to kind of run, which is, you know, digital transformation um, and, and the shift to digital first services is going to leave a lot of people behind. Um, there are, you know, an awful lot of people, as we've seen kind of during them, um, during the current crisis who have either limited or no access to um, digital technologies. Um, and, you know, we've seen it with things like people trying to kind of do um, homeschooling remotely when there's only kind of, you know, one smartphone um, in the house, for instance. Mm. Um, and I think these have really been sh- thrown into sharp relief. They've always been kind of topics that have, you know, had some, some kind of um, attention, but it feels like they're kind of, you know, the heat's really turning up on that. Um, the other big one, which is there, and you know, it's always a favourite topic for me, is money. Um, so it says very clearly on social care, there's been massive underinvestment. Um, and then it goes back to the NAO report of last year, um, saying that um, there is um, a lot of doubt about whether the estimates from um, NHS England um, on investment requirements over the next um, period, which I think is about 8.3 billion for the NHS on digital are going to come anywhere close to being met. They think it's almost going to be kind of, you know, 50% sort of shortfall on that. And um, mm-hmm. so money to match the ambitions across health and social care. Um, and the challenge has got even tougher because of the huge backlog of work we now have um, as a result of the um, pandemic. It isn't getting any easier. No, it's, I can't imagine it is. I'm glad you mentioned digital exclusion as well, John, or inclusion. Um because I think that's something that often gets forgotten about as well. And we actually ran a podcast a couple of weeks ago, months ago, earlier this year. Um, and I spoke to the Good Things Foundation who worked with NHS Digital on um, their on their inclusion projects. And I actually learned that there's 9,000 people in the UK that don't have access to the internet. I think it was 9,000. I hope I haven't got that figure wrong. But it was huge. And I just thought, I like, I think that's a side of 
digital that we tend to forget about is it doesn't there's not everyone uses it in the same way that we do um so I'm glad that that was addressed in this report as well um but I guess, I guess my next my next big question and I don't know if you guys have the answer to this but I'm going to ask it anyway um is is the center doing enough to support digital transformation in social care and if they're not what do they actually need to be doing uh so I think the first way into that is what's the strategy for social care itself before we get into the technology and how we're going to make that different. And at that point, I'd read this paper in conjunction with the King's Fund paper on the, um, the new healthcare white paper. So that on the healthcare side, the big one for us there is reorganization of ICSs, less emphasis on competition, more on joining up locally. That's going down pretty well, uh, I think, across the field except for the problem of you know, how long it takes for any organization to give benefits. But from the point of view of this discussion, it's very hard to see where that works when it explicitly says, we haven't worked out how social care fits into this well. So if all the healthcare people, NHS and other providers, are working very hard on a reorganization based on that, which is stronger on community, stronger on collaboration, has um, statutory involvement of local authorities who are very big players in that, but doesn't have the future model of social care involved, it's very hard to see how any of this is joined up. And one of the things I thought we might get from this report is how that is different in Scotland with a different guarantee to citizens of social care. But I don't really see that. So we're sort of waiting on the white paper side to see where social care goes. And while we're waiting for that, it's very hard to see how things get joined up. And then on John's point, it's very hard to see how the money flows if you haven't got the strategy of social care. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm just going to correct an earlier figure. John has corrected me very helpfully in the chat. It is not 9,000 people that don't have access to the internet. It is way more than that. And I underestimated it. It's about 2.7 million. Um, so there we go. <laughs> so, my first correction on the podcast. Um, <laughs> sorry, who would like to say something next? I feel like I just interrupted John about to say something. Um, that's okay. It was um, it was um, an easy mistake to make. Um yeah, so I think I think what again where this paper kind of scores kind of um, extremely kind of well, I think, is is pulling some of these disparate threads together. So um, and talking about them particularly in the context of a UK that has left um, Europe, where an already complex um, regulatory environment has really been thrown into disarray. So um, there's a reminder in there, for instance, that GDPR um, um, regulations, um, as things currently stand, um, people believe they are coming to an end at the end of 2021. Um, and yet all of our kind of data kind of management is based around GDPR um, at the moment, or at least a large extent of it. Um, fearsome kind of challenges on the regulation of uh, medical devices, um, including software. Um, People still beginning, just beginning to kind of figure out how you kind of um, regulate um, medical use of algorithms um, and, and AI. It adds up to a lot of challenges. And um, one of the themes that kind of comes through is that that creates a market that is not particularly attractive, um, potentially for um, innovation or for suppliers to um, to bring new products and services to market. So. Um, although, although it can be a little bit on the kind of um, dense side, um, not, not particularly kind of exciting, I think there's a host of regulatory um, challenges 
um, including around kind of information governance um, and data protection that are precursors for the kind of kind of um, benefits of digital health and care that um, that the authors are looking to see. Um, but again, you know, for, for me, kind of reading this report was um, was a bit of a reminder that um, it's pretty tough um, and it isn't going to get easier and, and it will require um, a, a lot of kind of, um, you know, expertise to work through some naughty questions. Um, on the data piece in particular, and which is the piece I think is the bit that sort of um, it all kind of um, rests on, um, it's going to be very, very interesting to see how the data strategy we're, we're promised um, begins to address this. Because we have lots of short-term emergency powers that the Secretary of State took onto himself during the um, pandemic, which um, are governing how an awful lot of data is um, being kind of shifted around the system. And the suspicion is, is the government's going to be very reluctant to give up those powers and yet has not kind of had a, what I would consider a meaningful public debate about this. Mm. I'm, um, I'm glad you mentioned, like John, also the changes that are going on uh, with the data strategy and also um, Jonathan, the ICSs um, and what, what role they'll play um, based on the white paper. I remember when we had a discussion on the podcast, um, when the white paper was first in, like, released, um, we had a lot of chat about the fact that it didn't really address how social care plays into that. Um, and this King's Fund report isn't the only report that's you know recently mentioned that ICSs will play a part, but also that we need to have more of an idea of what part they'll play. Um, Tech UK earlier this year, I think it was February, that they released their um, 10 point plan for health tech. Um, and they focus a little bit on how ICSs will play an increasingly important role in social care. Um, but also, and I'm going to quote this before anyone emails me and says that was a rude thing to say, but they did say that social care has been unduly seen as the poor relation of the NHS. Um, and also that it's been a bit of a policy no man's land, um, even though there have been some attempts to find some suitable models to really drive digital transformation in there. So it's not the first time that we've heard um, that social care is kind of lagging behind NHS providers um, with technology. Um the King's Fund report really focuses on the need for money to help with that. Do you think that that is the be all and end all, I guess? Like, is money the fix for it? Or is there something else we need to be focusing on as well? Uh, well, I'm much more worried about leadership responsibilities. And one thing we haven't talked about, I'll come to mm. in a minute, than I am about money. But that's partly because of the technologies they've chosen. They haven't chosen big corporate systems. They've chosen stuff that's rather easier to do incrementally in modules, everyday technology. That's not totally true. It's true of the mobile technology, the personal technology. Those things are commodities. You can do them um, quite easily. But if we don't uh, have national leadership, this question, I think it's probably aimed at John, is what can we do at the peer level of networking to identify good practice, leaders who've emerged by themselves rather than waiting to get a national hat to wear, Identif that identification of transfer of good practice, which is how most sectors actually work. That leaders, leaders do matter, but most changes you put into place, because you saw it working somewhere else and you knew about it and you trusted how they did it, and then you copied it. I mean, a couple of times in a career you might invent something. You generally identify and transfer good practice. So if we don't have the national leadership, I wonder what we can do bottom up in the area of social care. That sounds like a job for the digital health networks. John, what do you think? 
Yeah, I, I think it's a, a really, really interesting kind of um, challenge. Um, and so th this is just a straw in the wind. So I, I don't pretend that we are kind of, um, you know, have, have the answer on it. But in over a period of time, we've, um, we've run um, summer schools and other events um, where um, we've tried to include some kind of um, participation from social care digital leaders. So, you know, CIO and CCIO counterparts from, from local authorities. And there's some excellent ones out there. Um, but I think one, one of the kind of, you know, recurring kind of themes that we've had is that they are, at this point at least, still um, leaders with um, quite different kind of, um, you know, perspectives on the world. And that there is some way to go before we have um, widespread um, integration um, of health and social care and that's the norm um, rather than the exception. And as Jonathan was saying, you know, and, and pointing out earlier on, you know, in, in that kind of acute provider environment, um, you know, that, that focus tends to gravitate to big EHR systems, um, to um, clinical systems, lab systems, et cetera. And the world is very, very different in um, local authorities where, you're probably looking at kind of planning systems um, as a as a local authority CIO, as much as you are, um, you know, child health um, and um, and vulnerable kind of um, adults. Um, so, what what I what I think is that um, is that there's an awful lot more that's going to need to be done um, at multiple kind of levels to bring leaders from health and social care on digital together. And I think we're still at a very early kind of stage. And ICS is a clearly important part of the landscape, um, but I suspect they're not um, sufficient in themselves. And um, and that you know leaders at a, at a local level are still going to have to work with an awful lot of uncertainty um, um, going forward. Jonathan, does that does that kind of resonate any of that? Yeah. So you know. I, I... I, I'm really not saying that ICSs are anything like the solution, more that they have to be taken into account where what we're looking at for the future of social care and the technology um, that, that will be used. But that point about not buying the corporate systems, I, th I think, is very important. So you'll find in typical local authorities a corporate finance system. And then they'll look like departments do in hospitals that have highly specialized systems for works and planning control and electoral aspects. And, and they're not big joined up systems in any way at all. And as previously, I have some optimism that there might be an opportunity for getting this right. But there's another aspect that I think we haven't discussed. And that is that we're lumping together in a whole load of different things in social care. And we may not be great at identifying what the different ones are within there. There's, there's a, a large element related to uh, child protection. There's a large element related to care of the elderly. And then there's a whole set, a set of others. And I just wonder if those are shaped rather differently from each other. And because we haven't got those leaders who've been explained, this is what my subject is about for some time, it's very hard for outsiders to actually understand all the different things that are lumped together within that. That's much less, less the case with healthcare, because you know what that building does, that one's a hospital, and you know what that building does, um, that building's a general practice, and you know what that building is, that's a community pharmacist. And I'm not sure the social care has that sort of exposure that allows a more nuanced understanding. And I think thus far, at least, um, 
what we haven't sort of um, come across many of yet, um, they may be out there, but we just haven't kind of, um, we haven't kind of found them yet, is many digital leaders that, that can operate across both of those kind of worlds, um, both health and social care, and, and are familiar with them. Um, now, there's one or two I know that, that are kind of beginning to make that journey where, you know, they've built a career in local government and have moved now to the NHS um, or have gone the other way. But I think one of the kind of challenges that ICSs um, will have, and um, I look forward to seeing how it, how it evolves, is digital leaders that are going to operate across both those domains and act as um, someone who can help navigate and interpret between them. And in that regard, I think that's got an awful lot of similarities with the um, with the CCIO role, which is someone who can operate across multiple kind of domains of expertise, clinical, um, managerial, um, and technical, um, and help those worlds understand each other and communicate with one another. So I think there are some real parallels. Yeah, I think with the kind of ICSs becoming statutory, I think that's going to be a really important sort of step that it will be interesting to see what happens because all the talk has been about ICSs and how it's going to join up care and and it's going to you know change everything and make everything great and you know you know everything's going to be fine and dandy but i think social care is important and we're dealing with a lot of things that are outside of kind of acute and primary healthcare services you know you have aging populations you know, there's going to be more reliability on on social care. And if you're not joining them up, if you're not kind of bringing social care up to the same digital standards, it's going to be really highlighted, I think, when these ICSs come into force. Because if you're kind of, if that kind of information, you know, that flow of information is kind of stopping sort of as soon as you leave the hospital and and maybe, you know, it could have consequences for people's healthcare and, and what happens to them. So I think it's it's going to be an interesting few months to see what happens with ICSs and that impact that it's going to have and maybe change people's attitudes to social care because I think it's joined up healthcare is joined up health and social care. I feel it's not just joined up health, it's it's health and social care as well. So I think this kind of statutory footing that ICS is going to be given, um, I think will be interesting to see basically what's going to happen. I agree. I think that's right. And in particular, whether those ICSs three years on look as if they're liaison committees between NHS providers and they're just sort of yeah. adding it on or whether they're really running the area for the NHS, mm-hmm. even before you get to social care. And of course, the usual for test for that is how many different directors of finance are there? Exactly. If you really believe it, there's one. If you want a liaison committee, there's seven. And the balance of power then changes. Once you have a lot of people from the community side, from general practice, they are very aware of the interactions with social care and what happens when they go wrong. So the balance of power within ICSs, I think, could be very important for making them welcoming places for social care to be there. Yeah, I completely agree. I agree as well. I am. I yeah, I was listening to what you're saying, Hannah, and I do think it's going to be really interesting to see how ICSs pan out because it, it is connected health and social care, not just connected health. I think the flow of information is really, really important because social care is dealing with really complex issues. Um, and, you know, random example for, you know, thinking of you know people in nursing homes, for example, if they don't actually need to go into the hospital, if there's a way that they can be seen by a doctor digitally, and that information can be flowing across the system. That's so much less stressful for the patient. And that's a really important issue that I think needs to be addressed. Um, 
And also something we've talked about on other podcasts. I'm really plugging the podcast today, aren't I? Um, but we did discuss the use of tech in social care a couple of months ago. I had Keith Strahan on the podcast, actually, and um, Mandy um, Mandy Thornton from March's Care. And we did discuss how technology has been used um, during the pandemic. And it's just little things like making sure that, you know, they had iPads so that loved ones could actually call people and just say, hey, we're OK. How are you doing? And that makes such a big difference to their care. Um, so, yeah, I think it's very important that we don't leave social care behind in in that transformation process. Um, because, I th- yeah, if if it is left behind, I think there are just small things that can be quite detrimental to patients' health as well. Yeah, I think that's a great example about what's been done with the tablets during the last year. John mentioned mm-hmm. the regulatory aspects. I'm actually a lot more optimistic. I, what I saw happening in the last year is people just getting on with cross-organisational projects that would have taken years before. I don't think it was a letter from NHS England that released that. I think people just knew they had to do it. That's very encouraging for the future. One thing we haven't discussed is the view from the uh, citizens, the carer's point of view about Mm. access to multiple systems. So we've got that good news about um, change of channel for communications in both primary care and secondary care on the health side. I'd be interested to see what's been achieved in the social care side, but a unified view of all of those bits that are currently available from a citizen's point of view. And to me, that would be very important to include scheduling so that people can actually see what future encounters they have scheduled, what they're supposed to do next. That connects into well-being. When am I going for that Mm. walk? What am I going to do about weighing myself? Or all of those aspects of preventive medicine that doesn't look like this is what each individual provider is providing for me, but what the next few months look like for me as a citizen from multiple providers. Now, Mm. again, that's something that we all do every day with our own diaries now, with everyday technology. That's back to that strand of everyday technology. But a little more, a little extra work by the providers across health, across health and social care, could give a big advantage for that um, for citizens. Yeah, absolutely. It's about empowering the patients, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, if, if there was one further thing which I'd add, um, it's um, I was really struck in, in this report by how centrally it talks about the bedrock is is the citizens having trust in how the health and care system uses their data. And that that's the foundation on which everything else um, will be built um, over the next five to ten years. And I, I th- without wanting to sound like Cassandra um, constantly, um, I don't think the government or the civil service really ever quite get that. I think that they is a default view that um, they should be trusted without having to kind of um, explain why or how with our data and and in the past in many ways that was a slightly esoteric argument but we are in a world now in which the majority of health data is digital um, the ability to actually gain insight by combining or analyzing that data or applying kind of increasingly sophisticated algorithms has grown and grown exponentially and i think it, it is absolutely critical um, for a a future digitally enabled health and, and care system that trust um is um you know seen as essential and um and i'm a bit concerned as i say that in in the current kind of um environment um and um, data strategy coming that that won't be um, given sufficient kind of um focus or be done in a 
in a slightly kind of um, you know tick box exercise. That that would be my main concern from this. <laughs> no, I agree. I think trust is it's hugely important. You know, patients and and clinicians need to trust what we're using, otherwise it's not the uptake's going to be terrible, and there'll be no point running it. Um, I also think there needs to be like a, a clearer direction um, in leadership. Um, I, I could, to be honest, I didn't find it surprising that the report found that there's not much clear direction on leadership, given that in the time I've been at Digital Health, which is just over two years, there's been the formation of NHSX. And now NHSX is potentially going to be merged into other organisations with NHS England to form a transformation directorate. Um, and then you've also got this government white paper that's come out that's introducing ICSs and like a new way of joined up working. Um, it does seem like the strategy and the leadership changes. Um, every few months and it's hard for us to keep up with it um, and that's our job so I can't imagine it's easy for you know social care providers and NHS providers to keep up with it I mean do you think we're going in the right direction by changing the leadership right from the top again less than two years after NHSX was launched I think the NHS has kind of built up a certain level of immunity to this I mean you know most, <laughs> most leaders operating the NHS you know, this is this is normal. This is not kind of the exception. <laughs> Maybe it's because I'm new to it and I find it shocking. <laughs> well, I don't know about immunity. Um, I, I've certainly had a lot of doses in my career. <laughs> <laughs> Those are the kind of puns we like on this podcast. <laughs> um, brilliant. Well, Hannah, John and Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us on Digital Health Unplugged. It has been so great having you on. I've really enjoyed this discussion and I hope you've enjoyed being part of it. And of course, to everyone who's tuned in, thanks for listening. Please don't forget that Digital Health Unplugged is published fortnightly on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and the usual podcast platforms. So you can give us a follow on any of those to keep up to date with what we're doing. And if you've got a podcast suggestion, we're really keen to hear from you. You can get in touch on podcast at digitalhealth.net. That's it for this episode. We'll catch you in two weeks time. You've been listening to Digital Health Unplugged. We hope you enjoyed this episode. For more episodes or to keep up to date with what Digital Health Unplugged is doing, you can give us a follow on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast channel. If you want to know more about Digital Health, our news and events, you can head on over to digitalhealth.net.